0: Seats matter. Almost every Sunday you're asked to have a seat, take a seat, find a seat. If you want to see what happens when you tell a middle school boy that, just come down to the youth room. I always wonder exactly how to tell them to sit down, because I know no matter what I say, they're going to take me literally. Sitting down is an interesting thing. It's it's simple, but a lot can be communicated once you have to sit down. Everybody in the concourse looks the same until they call the first class passengers. Huh. And they all go and sit down so that the rest of us that live on the other side of that curtain can take the walk of shame. Some of you fly on buddy passes and you got in first class that way and you still give those of us in the back a look of shame. Everybody looks the same before they go into the gates of the ball game. We're all fans together. <laughs> yeah, until I have to keep walking up the stairs and up the stairs and up the stairs and, the stairs and plant myself in the nosebleed section even if somebody who had season tickets gave them to you, we feel a certain sense of smugness when we're five rows from the sideline. Look where I'm sitting. Now let's just bring it even closer to home. If you're a guest here this morning, you don't know this, but the reality is as there are assigned seats even in this room. Yes. 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 Now don't fear, if you're a guest and you sat in somebody else's seat, well, it's always amusing if you get to see it happen. Right? You have a baptism or a baby dedication and a bunch of family members show up. We have a lot of guests. And one of us regulars goes to our normal seat only to find somebody already sitting there. And for a second, composure is lost. What? <laughs> But then you pull it back together. This is my cross to bear. I will suffer for Jesus this Sunday and sit somewhere else. Seating matters. Somehow, most of the classes I attended when I was in school, we ended up having a seating chart. And I think because my teachers loved me so much, Somehow, my seat was always right next to their desk. Well, this morning in our passage, we see a seating chart that matters. The Gospel of Luke is a historical account. Luke is very clear that he's writing with the intention of giving a historical account of the life of Christ, I think he's probably writing because Theophilus, the one he addresses at the beginning of his Gospel, has paid for him to do this research and to write this Gospel. He is writing as a Gentile to Gentiles, and he wants these Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, and those who are considering to understand that yes, while Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews, He also came to be the Savior of the world. So Luke starts his genealogy all the way back with Adam, instead of like the Gospel of Matthew that starts with Abraham. But Luke also does this. Luke keeps drawing in to those that are marginalized. Because you see, it's not many of the upper echelon of the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. It is the least and the lowly that are being drawn in. And so all throughout Luke's Gospel, he highlights these individuals in the life and ministry of Christ. When we get to this section in the Gospel of Luke, we are at the point where Jesus has set His face towards Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. So his ministry in and around Galilee has come to a close, and now he very with much determination, I should say, he turns himself towards Jerusalem. He knows, as for instance, the Gospel of John puts it, that his hour is drawing near. And as he ventures towards Jerusalem, the animosity and the intensity of the conflict between himself and the religious leaders continues to grow. This is very intentional on Jesus' part. So, the last time Luke records Jesus being invited to a Pharisee's house is in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, Jesus and this interaction at this meal, things get a little tense. Jesus gets to the place where He's pronouncing woes on these religious leaders. A lawyer stands up and announces, you're offending us. And in the end, Luke chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, this is what we read, "...as He, meaning Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press Him hard, to provoke Him to speak about anything, lying in wait for Him to catch Him in something He might say." So that gives us the context of where we find ourselves in Luke 14. Now Luke as a historian is not going to try to assign motives to people that he doesn't know about. So when we read these introductory verses in Luke 14, we get the setting of the, our, our passage we're going to focus in on this morning, which is verses 7-11. through 11. We find Jesus has once again been invited to a Pharisee's house. This happens to be a ruler of the Pharisees. So this is not an open invitation to everyone. This is an exclusive group of people who have been invited this house. Now, it just happens to be the Sabbath day. Jesus is invited, and lo and behold, there just happens to be a man there who has dropsy, which is a condition where part of your body swells. So it's a condition that would have been obvious. Verse 1 tells us that that, that Jesus is being watched carefully. Verse 2 Luke makes very clear that this man with this condition isn't just in the room or around the house. He somehow ends up right in front of Jesus. So it's that awkward moment when the beggar in downtown Atlanta is not on the other side of the street or a couple blocks away. They're right in your face and you get angry because now I've got to do something. Either I ignore you and walk on by or I have to try and give you something. This man is right there before Jesus, and I think the trap is set. I think all of this is clearly very intentional. This is why they invited Jesus. This is the point of the whole thing. They're going to get Him right here, right now. So Jesus asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And what does He get? Silence, right? All the dads in here know this. It's dark. You're hiding in the dark hallway. And your kid all, all of a sudden catches up with it. Dad, dad? Dad, are you hiding down there? What am I going to say? Yes? Are you kidding me? That ruins the whole thing. Just come on down the hallway see what happens. They're not going to respond to Jesus. They're silence. Then Jesus takes the man aside as if not to make him a spectacle showing compassion towards Him, heals Him, and sends Him away, which just further points to the fact He was not welcome at this feast. And then Jesus asked them another question, which of you having a son, or even an ox, that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull Him out? And now the response is very different. Now what Luke records is way different than they were silent. Luke says they could not, they lacked the capacity to respond to Jesus. Now let's be honest, we've all been here before. We thought we had orchestrated a gotcha moment, right? You thought you were in the argument. They were coming in right where you wanted them. You were going to spring the trap. Bam! Everyone in the room was going to know how smart you are that you got them. And then you get gotten. And you have no response. So the tables have been turned now. These. Pharisees and religious leaders that thought they were going to spring a trap on Jesus and they were going to expose Him, they have been exposed. So after this time, which culturally would have probably been like the appetizer time, the really important people would have showed up later, now they've been called to table, I think what you can have in your mind is a bunch of men who are licking their self-esteem wounds. So when it's time to go to the table, Now is the moment for me to reassert myself and show, hey, I'm not a loser. And so, what we've got to do now is get to the places of honor at the table. So, in verse 7, things have flipped. In verse 1, they're carefully watching Jesus. In verse 7, now Jesus is watching them. And what Jesus is watching is not an honorable thing. He's not watching something that's really organized. No, the parable that Jesus goes on to tell demonstrates that what He he is beholding is nothing more than an exposure of sinful pride. Now culturally, there were places of honor. At the right and the left of the host. As you reclined at the table, it was obvious to everyone. Either you're in first class or you're on the other side of the curtain. Either you're at club level or you're somewhere else. I don't care because you're not in air conditioning. Right? It was obvious because you had to sit down and everyone knew where you were at and so these men, having just been owned, as it were, by Jesus, are now going, hold on, I'm getting to the place of honor. I need to reinflate my self-esteem, my importance. I'm going to get to the best seat I possibly can. Now, don't misunderstand this parable, and don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. Luke is very intentional about this. Jesus is not against places of honor. It was a normal cultural thing. We have places of honor. Jesus nowhere teaches that He's against honor, greatness, glory, any of those things. In fact, later on, Luke 22, when the disciples are having this whole debate about who's greatest in the kingdom, that would have been a great moment for Jesus to come in and go, listen guys, get over greatness. I'm not for greatness. That's not what He does. Instead, what He does is redefine what greatness is. That's what He does. God is not against glory. In fact, I would argue that Scripture teaches instead that you and I long for glory, and our longing for glory is part of the eternity that is written on our hearts. There is a reason that we cannot be satisfied with the glory of this world, but long for a greater glory because we were created to reflect the glory of the Most Glorious One. So Jesus isn't against places of honor, that's not it. Luke is very clear that what Jesus is observing here is how they were choosing the places of honor. That's what Jesus is watching. That's where the pride is exposed. So these men are seeking honor. Honor that comes only in comparison to others. Now this is what sinful pride is. in his well-known book uh, Mere Christianity C.S. Lewis has a chapter on pride great chapter and in there he describes pride this way pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking but they're not they are proud of being richer cleverer and better looking than others if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. This is what Jesus is watching. Men who are jockeying with others who have already been invited. (laughs) You see that? We know this. We know this in our lives because the fight, the pecking order, it never stops. These people were already invited and many were limited, but now among those who are invited, now I need to earn my place here. And on and on it goes. And so Jesus tells a parable to Uh, speak to what's taking place. Now, I think it's important that Jesus is telling a parable for one small reason and then one significant reason. One reason I think Jesus is telling a parable is because He's speaking to what's actually happening. Okay? So, try and remove your Sunday school lenses for a second and think about how awkward this moment is. Right? This is the kid at the table who announces to everyone what everyone knows but wasn't going to say anything about so they got in the car, this casserole is disgusting. Why are we trying to eat this? And you're horrified. Why? Not because you disagree, but because you don't say that now. You wait. Mom, why does that guy's breath smell so bad? You've got gum in your purse. I saw it. Offer Him gum. Not not now. Jesus is in the moment. This is happening right now, and He's going to speak directly to what's happening. So in His wisdom, He tells a parable. Not to take the sting away, but just to lessen it enough where they're forced to listen. But way beyond that, Jesus is speaking to much greater things. Jesus isn't concerned about seats at a table. Jesus is speaking about His kingdom. And so He tells a parable. And He says that you're invited to a wedding feast. And when you're invited to the wedding wedding feast, His warning is don't sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by Him. Now, We have to take this parable at face value. Jesus is not speaking here about discrimination or any of those things. You just take it as it is, right? You you were invited to a wedding. Weddings still work, right? This is a cultural thing here, but but weddings still work. All of you want us to know that you love us and you invite us to your wedding, right? Right? But we know because not all of us are part of the wedding party. We know. There's a difference in relationship. We we don't all want to be a part of the wedding party, so please don't don't ask. If if you did everything you could to make it all equal up to that point, the moment the reception happens, we know who is distinguished and who's not. Right? There are people who stick with the bride and groom and those who don't. And it's not a matter of the bride and groom looking out and going, oh, well, you're less valuable as a human being than my mom. No, it's, it's a place of distinction. It, it fits. It's right. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. You were invited to a wedding. You got a little full of yourself and you sat in Uncle Harry's seat. Uncle Harry shows up. And now, the hosts come to you and say, hey, you need to move down. Now thus far, if you're tracking, this really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it might be a little embarrassing, but it's not over the top embarrassing, but then Jesus goes on to say that you have to move down, but there's only one place left. Because He's describing the situation that He's witnessing, so the only place left is not just a few chairs down or a few tables away, it's the last place. It's the least. And then he says, you will begin to be with shame. Now why would that be a shameful thing? If it was just a simple accident, why would that be shameful? It wouldn't be. Why is it shameful? Well, it's shameful because I overextended myself. It's shameful because the place that I chose exposes the view I have of myself in comparison to everyone else who was there. It's shameful because I thought I deserved that place, and then I was exposed when that wasn't the right place for me. Now, we can all go, yeah, yeah, but we've been there. Pride is an equal opportunity employer. Pride is not picky at the buffet of life. Pride will consume anything about you and your life and make it the reason that you and I think we're better than our neighbors, than our family members, than our spouse, than our children, than even the people that we go to church with one person will pride themselves on the fact that they are politically conservative. While another person equally prides themselves on the fact that they are politically liberal. One person prides themselves on the fact that they are religious, while the other person prides themselves on the fact that they've seen through the foolishness of religion. One person prides themselves on the fact that they eat only super-healthy food. Another person prides themselves on the fact that they have an unbroken streak of having lunch at McDonald's. And round and round it goes. And what pride encourages us towards, what it moves us towards, is this relentless life where I have to do everything I can to hide all of my failures and all of my shortcomings, while at the same time exaggerating all of my successes and trying to suck up all of the glory for them.. The sad part of it is is that, as I study this passage, I don't have to think really hard or work to make a connection to me and to my life. The life of the proud is an anxious, worry-filled, stressful life where I have to constantly out scream and shout everyone else around me to convince them that the thing I'm clinging to to say I'm better than you is actually, it actually makes me better than you. Pride is like a a balloon. It fakes like it's something, but it's inflated. In this great little book, Tim Keller talks about the the, the freedom and the blessedness of self-forgetfulness, and he describes pride in this way. That it's an inflation. It's a balloon that looks like it has mass and substance, but... It's hollow on the inside. It's it's our German Shepherd who instinctively, when she wants to act like she's fierce, the hairs on the back of her neck stand up to make her look a little bigger. That's what I'm doing here, I'm trying to look just a little bigger. But the hairs stand up, but it, it's just hair. And so we boast. We boast in our political views, we boast in our pietism, we boast in our healthy eating, we boast in our waistlines, we boast in so many things, and if we can't find anything to boast about, we're certainly better than the guy who's boasting about eating at McDonald's. Are you kidding me? Comedian Brian Regan talks about me monsters, and that's what we all become. Every opportunity, every moment, being a time to celebrate me. So Jesus says this. Jesus says when you're invited, as He continues in this parable, verse 10, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when... you your host comes. He may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Now, some get a little concerned here that what Jesus is proposing is some form of false humility. My my mom loves Winnie the Pooh, and so like the Eeyore syndrome. I'm so terrible. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, walk around putting yourself down so that people can come along. No, you're amazing. No, I'm awful. I'm terrible. That's not it. If that's what Jesus was proposing, then what He would have said is, don't take the place of honor, you know, just kind of figure out somewhere midway at the table where you could sit down. You know, figure, figure out the people you are sure you're better than. I mean, the guy over there choking on kale, you are way better than him. You can sit firmly in front of that guy. That's not what He says. What Jesus says is, get out of the game altogether. Get out of the game altogether. You take the last seat, the lowest place. You take that seat. You sit there. And then when the host comes, if the host once again condescends and comes down, this time the host sees you and there's this warm proclamation, friend. Friend, move up here. Now notice, Notice He doesn't say that this is a Cinderella story, that this is a Disney fairy tale where you went from the lowest place and now you're moved all the way up to the place of honor. There are no glass slippers. Nobody becomes the queen of the kingdom. You're just simply honored because someone else praises you instead of you praising yourself. You're honored in front of those at the table. Now this is just practical wisdom at face value. I think these Pharisees and religious leaders would have understood it as that. This is wisdom. Proverbs 25, 6, and 7 talk about this. Do not put yourself forward in the King's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put low in the presence of a noble. My dad summed all that up with that little phrase, don't toot your own horn. right? Don't walk around telling everybody you're great. Man, I'm an awesome singer. Man, you ought to hear me sing. I'm an amazing singer. You ought to hear me sing. I'm good at singing. Have I told you I'm good at singing? I'm great at singing. Maybe I should sing that to you so you know how good I am at singing. Right? It... Don't, don't toot your own horn. Don't sing your own praise. Rather, allow someone else to praise you. The most fitting praise is the praise of those who are themselves praiseworthy, right? If you're walking around declaring that you're an amazing singer, nobody wants to hear you sing. If you just sing and people recognize that you can sing, that's great. If you sing and I say you're an amazing singer, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Because I don't know what a note is. But if somebody who knows what they're doing says that, Then it fits. Then there's honor given. When the host at the feast, who knows everyone who's been invited, who has purposefully made sure that there are places for everyone around the table, comes to you and says to you, No, you are in too low of a seat. Move higher. That is honor. So if we take verse 11 now and we lay it back over top of the parable, we see that it fits perfectly. And it helps to draw attention to the verbs of verse 11, which are so important. Jesus sums it up by saying, listen, those who exalt themselves, right? The first person taking the place of honor, they actively exalt themselves. What happens to them? They are passively humbled. It's acted out upon them. And they are shamed. But those who actively humble themselves, the second person in the parable, they are exalted. So, they're passively exalted. What Jesus is talking about here, as I mentioned earlier, goes far beyond seats at a table. Jesus is talking about His kingdom. His kingdom which is an upside down kingdom. His kingdom in which up is down and down is up. A little later, Jesus would tell another parable recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and another comparison is going to happen. And it's going to happen while two people are praying in the temple. And one man happens to be a Pharisee, and he is going to be standing, and in his prayer he is going to, in pride, compare himself to the tax collector who is far off and going to tell God how thankful he is that he's not like other men he's not an extortioner he's not unjust he's not an adulterer he well he's not like that tax collector and in pride he is going to inflate himself and pray in almost in such a way as to say God aren't you glad you picked me to be on your team and not that guy the tax collector however Stands far off, won't raise his head, beats his chest, makes no excuses for himself, and pleads nothing but mercy. Now why in the world does that parable have anything to do with this parable? Because Jesus sums up that parable in the exact Same way, Luke 18, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now here is the crux of this. Here is where I get jabbed in my heart because I read that parable in Luke 14 and guess what I'm doing? Yeah, that stinking Pharisee, ha <laughs> ha! Got what was coming to him. Jerk. Would never do that. Never exalt myself over somebody. Eat dust, guy! Woo, go tax collector! What do I immediately do? Inflate my own pride, going, I'm not self righteous like that. I would never pray like that. Are you kidding me? How could that guy? And in so doing, I missed the whole point. Jesus is not holding up the life of the tax collector going, here's a model to follow. What Jesus is pointing at is the fact that this man is not no longer comparing himself with others, but he is humbled before a holy God. And so he has nothing to do but plead mercy Before that holy God, and it is He who is justified, because justification does not come on the base of merit, but by grace through faith. Entrance into the kingdom is not for those who are actively seeking to exalt themselves. Entrance into the kingdom is not for those who try hard to pull themselves up, reform themselves, and make their case that they deserve to be on Jesus' team, that they should get in. That's what Jesus is observing with these men around the table. All of them are convinced that for sure this guy who's here right now is not our Messiah, because when the Messiah shows up, he's going to know not only should we be on the team, but we should all be in the starting lineup. Just look at our resumes. Look at our records. Look at how great we are. Man, God's got to be glad that we're on His team. I can't wait till the Messiah gets here and He realizes just how great we are. Romans 3.20 tells us that by works of the law, no one will be justified. In Matthew 18, Jesus pulls a child to Himself and tells His disciples, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself is like this, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not through proving I deserve to get in. Entrance into the kingdom comes through acknowledging that I am broken, that I am sinful, that I am sick, and I am incapable and pleading mercy. Now I know that's easy to say this morning. That's easy while we're sitting here to talk about, but this world is ruthless. And there may be some of you here this morning and you're hearing me say this, and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're thinking about moments when you've tried to be honest with people and you've tried to peel back, and you've tried to kind of deflate and be real about who you are and the struggles that are going on inside of you, and the evil desires that you have, and you were rejected. I mean maybe not outright, but essentially the message you got from the world is what are you doing? Put your mask back on. That's disgusting. Nobody wants to see that. Don't you understand if you show people that no one will love you? No one will accept you? How do we know? How do we know that we can be honest? how do we know we can admit that we're broken, we're lost, we're sinful? How could these men have known? How could they have gotten it? How should they have seen it? Well, I'll tell you how they should have seen it, because when you zoom out, you remember what's going on. The One most worthy of glory, the One most worthy of exaltation, the One who's worthy of the glory of every single person was right there in their midst. And he's blazing the trail. Because he didn't, as Paul says in Philippians 2, hold on to that equality that he had with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but willingly emptied himself, took on flesh, became a servant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the first One. He, deserving of all glory, humbled Himself more than any of us could. Marched before us and bore our shame on the cross. And Paul doesn't stop there in Philippians chapter 2, but makes very clear. This our King who humbled Himself actively was exalted and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning if you're here and you think that religion has to do with putting your best foot forward, if you're here and you've understood the message of the Bible and Christianity to be a message that says, clean yourself up, and when you've cleaned yourself up enough, then kind of make a pass at Jesus and see if He'll accept you, please hear me, please understand, please see the King of the universe clothed in flesh, who is not in the game, not clamoring for the place of honor, and says, I did not come for those who are healthy. I came for those who are sick. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. Run to Him as wretched and ugly and filthy as you believe that you are, and know this, you are worse still. But He says, come, plead no merit of your own, leave all of that behind, cry out to Him for mercy. Because for all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, and way more than that, all of our sin against a Holy God, the payment has been made in full by the precious blood that our Savior shed. Now the reality is, is that entrance into the kingdom is not just upside down, but life in the kingdom is upside down. It doesn't stop. It never flips back around. Life as a follower of Jesus Christ is not a life where we now throw elbows with one another, trying to clamor, to climb and claw our way to show that we're better than others around us. In fact, as we grow in our walk, as we as we understand more this kingdom, what we realize and what provokes us are the words that we just sang this morning. Instead of this idea where the longer I walk with the Lord, I go, man, God's got to be glad I'm on His team. Look what I'm doing. Look how better I am than these other people sitting around me. Instead, the cry of my heart is, why, why was I made to hear Your voice and enter while there's room? while thousands, millions, and billions make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. In Paul's great exposition of the Gospel in Romans, he gets to Romans chapter 12, and we know Romans 12, 1 and 2, this whole part of presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. We know the part about not allowing our minds to be conformed to this world, but being transformed. But in that immediate context, Paul connects that to verse 3. And in verse 3, this is what Paul says, for by the grace given to Me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see. The reality is is that it's easy to keep jumping back into the game. The reality is, is that even when we gather here on Sundays, which is supposed to be us declaring Christ to one another, we can so quickly slip over into declaring me and my greatness to the people around me. But we don't have to live that way. As I mentioned earlier, that book by Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he makes this great analogy. He said, self-esteem and sinful pride are like a courtroom. And we are always trying to build our case to prove, to to get the verdict that we want. (laughs) To prove that we're good. This is not the Christian life. The Christian life is not a life where I try to declare that I am good. That's what I submit before the judge. I'm good, and then the rest of my life is me trying to build the case to prove that that's true. To get that verdict back. That's not the way that it works. The way that it works Keller mentions is that in the Gospel, and only through the Gospel, the verdict comes before the performance. The Gospel works in this way that I come and I confess I am a sinner. I bring nothing. I need everything. And I plead mercy. And by grace, through faith, I am justified, declared righteous before God, the verdict is handed down. The declaration is made. And only because I am totally declared righteous am now I free to truly love, serve, and obey. Now my service is not a me-fest. It's not about me serving so that I look good. It's not about me reaching out so that I can move up the spiritual table to get to a place of honor. The verdict has been declared. And it has nothing to do with my performance. Nothing to do with how good I am. It has everything to do with the greatness of my Savior. And now, I breathe free kingdom air. Where I'm able to do exactly what Jesus then lays out for the host of this this feast. Don't you see the paradox of it? Don't you see how impossible it is? Jesus turns to the host and He says, listen, when you have a party, don't invite people who can pay you back. Invite those who can't pay you back. But if you don't get out of the game, what happens? Well, then I invite people who can't pay me back because that makes me look good. I love the least because loving the least makes me look really good. I'm kind to the ugliest person in the room not because I want to be around the ugliest person in the room, but because it makes me look good. Listen gang, when social media fell on the scene, it did not create a bunch of narcissistic, pride-filled people. It exposed what was already in our hearts. It gave us another platform to keep putting out there, I have it together, I have it together, I have it together. And the beauty, the wonder, the greatness of our Savior who's walking in humility all the way to the cross to bear our shame, is the same path that He lays down for us. And He says, listen, here there is freedom in My Kingdom. There is freedom, the blessedness of self-forgetfulness, where because you are hidden in Me and have been given My righteousness, the verdict has been declared, and now you are free to love and serve and obey, not clamoring to be made much of. But a lot like the Apostle Paul says, if I'm going to boast in something, I'm not going to boast that God picked me. I'm not going to boast that like I'm one of the greatest missionaries of all time. I'm not going to boast in all these churches that I've planted. I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to boast in. And it's not just some religious phrase, it's a reality, it's a mindset, it's an understanding. Now I know, I know that, that, that we joke around about this. And i thought about this, and I've thought about this for myself. I want to be honest with you all. We talk about humility, and we even make that joke. Don't pray for humility, right? Don't pray for humility, because God will give it to you. And the sad part is in the back of my mind I'm actually thinking something that my Savior calls me to would be bad for me I'm thinking that it's probably better to keep the position that I have at the table just keep fighting in the game just keep inflating myself as I can along the way in different ways but definitely not pray for humility listen to me brothers and sisters in Christ The same blessedness that you experienced the moment you stopped trying and said, Jesus, if You don't save me, I die, is the same blessedness that is there for those who would actively humble themselves. The same blessedness that is there for those who know self-forgetfulness, because that's the way of Christ's kingdom. That's what He offers. What a wonderful thing. My my challenge to you today is to just would you consider that? Would you even dare as we talk about to take up that prayer? Baraka Bible Church will not be known in the world because we outshout everyone else. As long as I am a pastor here, it will not be known because we are the spiritually elite. (laughs) Or else you're going to have to kick me off the team. The world does not need one more person shouting that they're greater. It doesn't need one more me monster at the party. What will stand out are those who are truly free to love, serve, and obey. Let's pray together. Father, I I thank You for the wisdom and the beauty of Christ. I thank You for this simple and yet powerful parable. I pray that if there are any here this morning who are still clinging to their own merit, whatever it may be, and thinking that the verdict will come down in the end that they were a good person, I pray that by the work of Your Spirit, that they'll leave all of that. And they'll plead nothing but mercy before You. And I pray for us as a church. I pray that, again, through the work of Your Spirit, You'd bring us low. Only You can do it. We we can't. But I pray that we'd be a church who is known for our self-forgetfulness, for our humility, for the freedom that is enjoyed here to love serve and obey because the verdict has already been declared it's not us it's not us it's christ in his name we pray amen